for your prayer uh, on my behalf, and it is my prayer also that what I have to say uh, this morning will be able to help you in some way as you go along in your Christian walk. Uh, if you pay any attention at all to me recently in the pulpit, and I understand if you don't, that's fine, but <laughs> you may have noticed a pattern that I've kind of been going over and over in my head, talking a lot about the, the motivations of God, uh, why he did certain things, why Jesus came to earth, why he did certain things. Uh, I gave a sermon a while back about why Jesus had to become a man in order to save us from our sins and talked about the fact that Jesus, when he came as a man, was both fully man and fully God and so was therefore as a man unable to do what God could do in humbling himself and dying and shedding his blood. But as, as being fully God, he was able to do what a man could not, and that is be perfect and show us how to live and things like that. And so as I continue to mull these things over in my head, I realize that we as, as a people kind of like things tied up nice and neat. At least I do. I like simple explanations. I like simple answers. I like to know that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and not some abstract concept of 2 plus 2 equaling something else. And as we think about why Jesus did what he did, why did Jesus come to earth, it all comes to me comes back to what we read in John chapter 19, verse 28, as Jesus is about to die. It says that knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, put it to his mouth. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And I suppose that if we ask ourselves the question, why did Jesus come to earth? And we have to have just the simple, tied up, nice and neat answer. This is the answer. He came to die on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God. But as I think more and more about this, this concept of wanting simple answers, I think, why do we have to put Jesus in a box like that? Why do we have to limit, this is why he came, this is what he did? You know, we sang the song this morning, he came to live, to live a perfect life. He, that, that's why we praise him. All these things that Jesus did, he came to die. He came to show us how to live. He came to do all these things. And I don't know why we have to boil it down to just one thing that Jesus did. I remember several years ago, it's been more than several years ago actually now, when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out that depicted the crucifixion of Jesus. And there was a lot of controversy surrounding that about, well, who put Jesus on the cross? Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? And there were ideas that the movie was anti-Semitic, saying that it was the Jews' fault. Some people think, well, it was the fault of Pilate and the Romans. And, and I remember Brother D. Till, I heard a sermon that he gave about that time, talking about who put Jesus on the cross. And the answer is that there wasn't necessarily one person. But if you're looking for the, just boiling it down, then God put Jesus on the cross. God's plan was to put Jesus on the cross from the foundation of the world. And Jesus himself laid down his life. And we put Jesus on the cross because of our sin. And Pilate and the Romans put Jesus on the cross. And the, it, there's not one simple answer. And I think as we consider, well, why did Jesus do what he do? What, what was his purpose in coming here? The ultimate answer is to reconcile us to God. But at the same time, the many things that Jesus did in this life all pointed to that. And Jesus doesn't have to be just one thing to us. He can be many things for one reason. Take, for instance, the fact that Jesus Christ was the master teacher. We talk about this all the time. Jesus was the master teacher. Brother Trevor has a great lesson that he does during the teacher training series about 
how Jesus is the master teacher and how there was never a man who spoke like this man. We read in John chapter 3, verses 1, two, 1 through 2, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Even Nicodemus, a Pharisee, the people that you would look at in, you know, as a whole and say they were the enemies of Jesus, you could say this man understood that Jesus was a teacher that had come from God. He understood there was something different about Jesus in the way that he taught. As we read about Jesus going about teaching, it says that when he had ended these sayings, that people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. Jesus taught differently. People looked, heard his teachings, and, and they, they saw a man who was teaching with authority. And as well, he did have authority. He was the son of God. And he was the master teacher. You know, when we are looking in our lives to learn something about how we should live, we should always look to Jesus first. And I know it's sort of out of fashion now, maybe not as much of a trend, but the bracelets that say WWJD, there's a reason people invented those bracelets. It's because it's a good idea. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus act? How would Jesus respond? Jesus is the master teacher. And we should spend our time sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from him through his word. Was that the whole reason Jesus came? Not necessarily. But that's one of the reasons he came. He came to be a teacher. And we should listen to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to have compassion. We read in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. Again, teaching. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Healing every sickness and every disease among the multitude of the people. Jesus went about, as he was teaching, he went about healing. He, be, he went about giving sight to the blind and making the deaf to hear, making the lame to walk. He did all these things because he had compassion on them. It says he saw the multitudes. He was moved with compassion for them. Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. His compassion, as, as we'll come back to a little bit later, and as he, it says in the last part of this verse, it was more than just compassion on people's physical ailments. It was compassion for them spiritually as well. But it's really nice when things kind of dovetail, when they accomplish more than one thing. And the compassion of Jesus, yes, he went about healing people and helping people physically, but at the same time, the compassion was also for their spiritual care. I love the example of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and the compassion that he showed there. I think it's the ultimate example of showing the compassion of Jesus and, and how he really feels about us. It says in John chapter 11, verse 32, when Mary came where Jesus was, this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. You know, when I think about the attitude that Jesus had, let's, let's keep in the back of our mind here something very important about what happened in this situation. And that was that Jesus waited until Lazarus was dead. And he did that intentionally. He had heard that Lazarus was sick, and, and when the news came to him, and finally he said, okay, we're going to go and we're going to wake up Lazarus. And they said, well, if he's sleeping, then you know, let's let him sleep. And Jesus said, no, he's dead. Jesus waited for Lazarus to die with the intention of coming late and raising him from the dead. Now, I know 
how I might react in this situation if I had the power to raise someone from the dead. And I came and I saw all these people weeping and crying and saying, if you had only been here. You know, Mary had the faith in Christ. She knew that he could have saved her brother from dying. And if I had been in the place of Jesus, I might have been a little bit smug. I might have just said, y'all are crying now, but y'all wait to see what I'm about to do here. This is going to be awesome. Jesus didn't have that attitude. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he wept. He saw the, the weeping of the, he saw the sorrow and the mourning that they had, and he groaned in his spirit. Think about that, the compassion it would take to do that, knowing that he was about to make everything better. But they wept, and so he wept. That's the compassion that Jesus Christ has for you and I. The ultimate form of compassion. And he wants us to be happy. He wants us to be healthy. He wants us to be spiritually well. And we serve a compassionate Savior. He came to expose the hypocrisy of the Jews. You know, a lot of what we see of Jesus and his interaction with people on this earth was him dealing with the the Pharisees, the scribes, the rulers of the Jews. And a lot of those were confrontational. And there wasn't always uh, an accord between them. In fact, there was a lot of discord between Jesus and the Jewish nation. And so we look at what Jesus did, and certainly a lot of what he did was to correct the error or point out the error that the Jewish nation was in at that time. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 7, he says, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You know, when Jesus talked to the Pharisees, he didn't pull any punches. And I really like the way he phrases this here, because I don't know about you, I, don't, I can't think of but maybe one or two times when a man like Nicodemus, for instance, actually gave Jesus respect that he deserved. When Jesus said, this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, what he was doing there, I think that's kind of a dig. He was saying, hey, you claim to serve God. You claim to be God's people. You claim to follow after him. But I am God, and you refuse to acknowledge that. And so therefore, you honor God with your lips, but your heart is far away from God because you refuse to accept me as the Messiah. He openly charged them with their hypocrisy. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. His accusation here is twofold, because number one, he says, the way that you live and the way that you are in your hypocritical nature, you can't enter the kingdom of God until you're ready to acknowledge me as the Savior. But in doing so, it's the blind leading the blind, and you're preventing other people from seeing the kingdom of God as well through your teaching. And so Jesus was very adamant about exposing the hypocrisy of the Jewish nation. He told the people, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. And so everything they tell you to do, that's what you need to do. But don't follow their example because they say and do not. You know, Jesus, through his word, can do the same for you and I. Because we're imperfect people, aren't we? Sometimes we're hypocritical. Sometimes we're caught up in sin. Sometimes we're weak and we need help. And Jesus, through his word, exposes our hypocrisy and exposes our sinful nature. And we need to understand and recognize that and be open to that. We need to be open to the criticism of Jesus and be convicted by his word and repent. Number four, Jesus came to exemplify perfection. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Let's make no mistake about it. Jesus is an example to us. Let, go back to the WWJD. Jesus is our example, and he lived a perfect life. You know how sometimes when you, when you say a word over and over, how it kind of loses its meaning? It sounds weird, like almost like a foreign word. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only weird one in the room who's done that. I remember doing that as a little boy. I'd find a word that I found fascinating, and I'd just say it over and over. And like, It doesn't even sound like the same word now. It just just loses its meaning. I think we do the same thing sometimes when we talk about about the perfection of Jesus so often that I think it kind of loses its meaning, and we forget how amazing it actually is. The fact that Jesus never once in his life committed sin. Never once was deceit found. He never deceived anyone. He never told a lie. He never sinned. And again, he's that perfect example that we can follow after. We should look at the life of Jesus and say, that's how I want to live my life. I want Jesus to be my example. You know, there are a lot of men and women in this room today who I would look at and be more than happy to tell someone I know You should follow their example. But you know, there are also things that all of those people have in their lives that I wouldn't want people to follow because they're not perfect. There's some really good people in this room, but they're not perfect. They make mistakes. Jesus, you can say without a doubt, 100%, if you want to know how to behave in this life, look to the example of Jesus, follow that example, and that will be the right decision to make. And so as we consider all of these things that Jesus did for us, you know, we, we find here Pilate, you know, even a man who, I'm, being a Roman governor, I'm sure he was a bastion of, of moral integrity. And, you know, <laughs> even he looked at Jesus and said, I don't know what your big fuss is about. This guy hadn't done anything wrong. I don't, I don't know that Pilate necessarily thought Jesus was literally perfect, but he was able to look at the situation and say, what's the big deal here? This guy hasn't done anything wrong. And then he cowardly washes his hands and says, do whatever you want to do. Jesus is the perfect example, and we should seek to follow that example. As we look at this list, all these things Jesus is. Now, the world might say, well, Jesus was just a good teacher, or he's just someone that we should look at as someone who had compassion on people, but he wasn't the Son of God. And quite honestly, when you make that claim and to say that Jesus was any one of these things but say that he wasn't the Son of God, then what's the point? What good does it do? Because Jesus was many things, and we could go on and on talking about all the things that Jesus was and is for us today. But at the end of the day, it's all for one reason. Remember the real reason? This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's what Paul said. That's what Paul told Timothy. Jesus Christ came into the world without acceptance. No other reason, really, other than the fact that he wanted to save his people. So, yes, Jesus is all of those things to us. But why is he all of those things? Just to look at Jesus as a good teacher. Why did he teach? He said in John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. Why did he teach? Was it just to have the notoriety of saying, I'm a good teacher? I'm the best teacher that's ever lived? He is the best teacher that's ever lived. 
But it wasn't just to get that award and hang it on his wall. It was so we could know the truth, so we could be his disciples, so we could learn from him and have our sins forgiven. That's why Jesus taught. Think about some of the good teachers that you've, you've seen and, and had in your lives. When I go back to grade school and think about some of my favorite teachers or middle school and high school, when I, when I think about the ones that I looked at and said, that was a really good teacher. Now, some of them I just liked because they were, they were fun people to be around, weren't necessarily good teachers. But the ones that were good teachers that you really learned from, they all had something in common. And that thing in common is that they really believe in what they're selling. They really believe in what they're trying to get across to you. And they have credibility because of that. Because then you know what they're teaching you is something they really believe in. And they, it's, it's almost a burden to them that they have to get off their chest, that they have to, to teach it to someone and to show someone. And that's exactly one of the reasons why Jesus is the master teacher, because he, more than anything else, he wanted to save us from our sins. And his t- teachings were doing nothing less or more than directing us to the cross. And that's why Jesus was a master teacher, and that's why his teaching was so important to us, because it leads us to the cross. Why did Jesus have compassion? He went around and he helped a lot of people physically, healed a lot of people. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest who is sympathetic, who is compassionate to us, but that compassion is so much more than our physical well-being. I mentioned earlier, it's nice when things sort of dovetail together, right? Jesus went about performing all these miracles. He did so to prove, number one, he was the Son of God. But we've already proved that Jesus was truly compassionate, that it wasn't just self-serving. You know, if I go out and I, and I see someone who, who's hungry, and I feed them a meal, I could do that for many reasons. I could do it because, well, I want people to see what kind of a, a person that I pretend to be. Maybe I really am a generous person and I want people to know that. Maybe I look at a man and say, this guy's hungry and I just want him to have some food. Or we can be like Jesus and be truly compassionate, truly want to help, but at the same time, what is our purpose in doing that? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The the compassion of Jesus served a purpose other than just helping someone in their immediate physical needs. The compassion of Jesus, the same as his teaching, leads to the cross. It says that Jesus looked out on the multitudes and he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were weary and they were as sheep without a shepherd. They were lost spiritually. And his compassion gathered them to himself. Why did Jesus expose the hypocrisy of the Jewish nation? Why did he confront sin? You know, some of those accusations that Jesus made were pretty severe. And as I said earlier, he didn't pull any punches. And so you may look at his attitude towards them and think, well, he really had it in for the Jews. It's almost like he was ready to just give them what they deserved. We read in Luke chapter 13, beginning of verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Boy, you got it coming to you now. That wasn't his attitude. And that's not what he said. He said, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. 
Jesus didn't confront and expose the Pharisees because they deserved it and he, he thought they needed to be punished. He did it because he loved them, no more or less than he loves anyone else, which is to say with everything that he has. Jesus wanted them to be saved. He wanted them to accept him as the Messiah. He said, you're not willing. See, your house has left you desolate, and surely I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until you're ready to acknowledge who I am, Jerusalem, until you're really to understand that I am the Savior, that I am the Messiah, and you accept me and acknowledge the fact that God sent me, your house will be left desolate. And he didn't enjoy that. He didn't want that to happen. He didn't look on the city of Jerusalem and said, boy, they're going to get it someday. No, he wept over the city of Jerusalem. He said, I wanted to bring you in. I wanted to bring you back to me. But you're not willing. You know, a lot of times we look at when we're convicted by sin, when we're confronted by our own hypocrisy maybe, it's so easy to make excuses. And I find it so, it's funny but not funny, that we, we go and we look at the example of the Pharisees and we say, how can they be so blind? How could they not see? There were points when the, the leaders of the Jewish nation literally came out and said, what are we going to do because this man does all these miracles? And now we're going to lose our place in our nation. They literally acknowledged that Jesus was performing miracles and it never occurred to them to take him at his word. And we look at their example and think, how could they be so stupid? Pardon me, parents, for those of you who don't like your children saying that word. But they were, right? They literally could not see. How could they not see? But we do the same thing. When we're confronted by sin in our lives, when we look at the mirror of the scriptures, and we see ourselves unkempt spiritually, and just walk away and forget what manner of man that we are. We do the same thing. Why did Jesus expose their hypocrisy? To crowd them to him. Why does he expose our hypocrisy and our sin through the scriptures? For the same reason. It all points to the cross. Why was Jesus perfect? Was it to win an award? You know, yesterday we went to a, a band contest in Albuquerque, and there was a band there that performed this uh, this concert performance that they did, it was based on, I think it was the Greek god Narcissa, where we get the, the word narcissist from, right? Someone who just looks at themselves and thinks, it's all about me. And it was a very interesting performance that they had. They had this one soloist that kind of ran around the whole field, always wanting the attention, grabbing your, doing these little cool trumpet solos, and always gathering the attention. It was intentional for him to do that, but I thought it was an interesting thing to think about, because there's so many people in this world who think they're, they're Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect. Jesus really was Mr. Perfect. We, we always think about, we never think about it in those terms because he was so humble and because he was so meek. He never drew attention to that to say, I'm Mr. Perfect. But he literally could claim to be that, and there's no denying that. But what was the point of his perfection? Yes, it's an example we should follow, the perfection of Jesus is something we should strive for, but is that why he did it? Because, newsflash, we can't do it. Nobody can. 
several years ago, man, probably more like 20 or 15, 20 years ago, I was really into talk radio. And I listened, I listened to all those guys. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm more mature now. I don't listen to those childish things anymore. Uh, but uh, I used to listen to Bill O'Reilly when he was on the radio. And he, it was after it was kind of post 9-11, and he was talking about all the religious issues that were going on with the Islamists and the jihadists and Christians and Jews and everything coming together. And he was trying to make nice and bring everybody together and talk about how, you know, we're all, you know, all worshiping the same God and all going to the same, why can't we just get along? And he had a caller that called into his show and, and the caller actually quoted scripture, quoted John fourteen six about how Jesus has said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And, and granted, that put Bill O'Reilly kind of in a tough spot because he claims to be a Christian. So how do you disagree with that while agreeing with it at the same time? That's kind of a, a tough situation to be in. But, you know, he, he told that caller, well, I'll look at that kind of like, well, Jesus said, if you live the, your life the way I live my life, then you're going to be okay. And as long as you pattern your life, after, and if you do that intentionally or if you do it just naturally because that's the kind of person you are, then or if you do it while following some other religion, then you're going to be okay. And I just kind of wanted to call in and tell Bill that he was exactly wrong. And you can be exactly wrong because he was. He was the opposite of what perfection, what Jesus was saying there was not live your life like I live my perfect life. What he was saying was you're saved because I've lived a perfect life and you can't do it. And that's what this passage says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's he making very plain, what he's making very plain here, to me at least, is that we can't do it. And that's why Jesus had to die. Jesus was perfect and sinless, and therefore, when he went to the cross and God put our sin on his shoulders... We get his righteousness. And it's not, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and live your life like I did, and you can be saved. It's, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Because I did what you can't do. And our salvation is not a result of our way of life. Our way of life is a result of our salvation. And all these things that Jesus were, these many things that he were, were for one reason. And that was to lead us to the cross. He said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer. And the amazing thing was it was always God's plan to be that way. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 says, Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before God even said the words, let there be light. The plan was already in place. He knew we'd need a Savior, and he knew that Jesus Christ would go to the cross and die for our sins. All these things for one reason. Jesus, in John chapter 12, verse 27, says, My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. There's so much more in this than just simply the fact that Jesus came to reach this hour. What Jesus is saying here, everything that I've done up to this point, 
All the things that I've taught you, all the compassion that I've had, all the lies and hypocrisy that I've exposed, the perfect life that I've lived. I'm troubled and I don't want to do what I'm about to do, but what else am I going to do? That's the reason I did all this. That's the reason I even went through the trouble. And I could call legions of angels and destroy it all, but what's the point? This is the reason I came. For this purpose, I came to this hour. This morning, I hope that you will not put Jesus in a box. That you will not look and say, well, Jesus is the most important thing to me. But instead say, Jesus is everything to me. Not just, well, Jesus is my Savior and he's a good teacher. But he's a good teacher because he is the Savior. And he has compassion on us because he's the Savior. And he exposes the sin and hypocrisy in our life because he's the Savior. And he's perfect which allowed him to be our Savior. He was all these many things for the sole purpose that we would come to him, that we would come to the cross. If you're subject to the gospel call this morning, need the prayers of the church, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.